Before we start the show, do you know someone who is under 40 and working toward the benefit of state or local public health? If so, nominations for the DeBeaumont Foundation's 40 Under 40 in Public Health Class of 2023 are open now until May 17th. The link to nominate is in the description of today's episode. Now back to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to From the Front Row. Today's episode is part of our new series featuring the 2021 class of the DeBeaumont Foundation's 40 Under 40 in Public Health, a group of leaders who are changing the face of public health in creative and innovative ways. Jessica Yuli received her Master of Science in Public Health from Meharry Medical College in 2013 and an MS in Chemistry from Tennessee State University in 2015. She is currently the Director of Programs for City Match, a national organization of urban maternal and child health leaders that promotes equity and improving the health of urban women, children, and communities. Outside of that, she serves on the Black Maternal Health Work Group for I Be Black Girl, a collective that creates space for Black-identifying women, femmes, and girls to grow, connect, give, and take action. Today, we'll be discussing Jessica's role at City Match, maternal child health, and more. My name is Radha Villamurray, and I'm co-hosting this episode with Lauren Levin. If it is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone both in and outside of the field of public health. Welcome to the show, Jessica. So let's get started. Can you tell us a little bit about City Match? I introduced it in our little intro blurb, but I want to know how you would describe it in your own words and how you got into your role with the organization. Good to be here with you all, everyone. I'm happy to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about City Match and maternal and child health. So City Match is a membership-based organization. Our members are primarily local health departments and some state health departments. We are the organization that basically helps build the capacity of local health departments and their community members. And so we do this through a number of different avenues, what we kind of call our bread and butters, our programming piece, which I'm director of programs over. We have a lot of learning collaborative style programming, but then also some other programming that really pulls on the expertise of those in the field, as well as people with lived experience to address a certain issue. So we have a few different examples of those. Right now we have a perinatal HIV project that really focuses on addressing and hopefully eliminating the transmission of perinatal HIV but also thinking through what types of services and supports are out there for folks living with HIV throughout their life course. So it might look different what you need when you're a teenager living with HIV than it would if you're an adult living with HIV and how do you even know what's available to you? So we're doing some work around that. Um, We also have an alignment for action learning collaborative that's really looking to align state and local priorities. So each state has their Title V or block grant specific priorities. What, What we're trying to do is make sure that the local and state priorities really align and speak to one another so that we're actually reaching a goal that the Maternal and Child Health Bureau actually has of reaching health equity by the year 2030. So those are just examples of learning collaboratives. We also have an annual conference, which will take place this year in New Orleans, Louisiana in September. So September 20th through 22nd. We have a MCH epidemiology training course, which is specific training course for MCH. So you might get your schooling or training in epidemiology, but you may not necessarily have kind of like that deeper dive into maternal and child health. And so we provide a training course for that. We also have a leadership program called City Leaders. So similar to kind of what I'm in for the Beaumont Foundation, City Match has its own iteration of that for um, emerging public health folks or folks who've been in the field, honestly, either way, who want to just grow and learn together as leaders in maternal and child health. So those are just a few of the things we do and how we do them. How I came to know about City Match, when I was a student at Meharry Medical College, I was an intern in 2012 at the Metro Public Health Department in Davidson County in Nashville, Tennessee. And that program was led by Dr. Kimberly Weich-Etheridge, who was director of the Family Youth and Infant Division at the health department then. Dr. Kim, as we call her, Dr. Kim was the chair of the board for City Match. And so if you were her intern, 
or her employee, you knew about City Match and some of the work that City Match did. Um, and after I finished my program and I went to do another program and I finished that, I was looking for a different type of employment. And Dr. Kim was like, well, there are these opportunities at City Match, but it's in Omaha, Nebraska. And so if you're all right with that and you want to take a stab at it, feel free to complete the application. And so basically I completed the application. And as they say, the rest was history. I started at City Match as a public health project coordinator. So I started at City Match in December of 2016 and over time went into a senior project coordinator role and then the opportunity for director of programs opened up. So that's my City Match journey. Lovely. That sounds like a unique experience to getting there. I love Omaha, though, so I feel like it was probably a good choice. So given that maternal and child health is integral to what you do at City Match. How would you describe for our listeners the state of maternal and child health in the U.S. today? And maybe, I don't know, a little bit of background on where it has been and how it's gotten to where it is today. Sure. And also, I just to like butt in, I, I know we asked, like Lauren just asked about the United States, but if you could talk about specific areas where you've worked too, that'd be mm-hmm. great. Just because I'm sure it's different everywhere, <laughs> which is, is why- like, I, I don't want to ask you to, like, pick a needle from a haystack, like just maybe a smaller haystack, like this places that you've lived. Sure. Absolutely. That's a really great question. And I love to talk about the the overall state of maternal and child health, because I feel like the measures that we have for maternal and child health that tell us what's happening are really good measures for assessing how well we're doing as a nation of taking care of our people. And so unfortunately, where we are right now is not where we should be. To kind of speak on the history a little bit of maternal and child health. So Lauren, you asked me this question. I'm like, you don't understand how deep of a hole I can get to into the history of maternal and child health. So I'm not going to go too deep, but I'm going to go a little bit deep with it. In the like early 1900s, you know, we kind of had some new laws coming together and and for establishing what does maternal care look like because there weren't really any regulations in place for maternal and child health. There were an enormous amount of maternal mortality cases and infant mortality cases because we didn't have all of the proper regulations in place to ensure that people were receiving the proper care. And so there were some acts and things that were put into practice back in like the early 1900s that allowed us to kind of have like those systems of this is how we will provide specifically obstetric care. And it was good. The nation needed that. That was meant to help kind of bring our instances of mortality down. It was good, but then it had some also other consequences. So if we look at the overall history of the United States, back if you're thinking about 1919, 1920, one, there's a lot of things happening in the United States at that time. Two, we are not in a era where all people can see healthcare the same way, right? So this is pre-civil rights. So the people who are providing care to people of color, so Black women or Indigenous women or folks who are giving birth in 1919 were midwives and granny midwives and mamas in the community that took care of them. So even though these kind of regulations were put in place that did help bring the overall rate of mortality down, it kind of also hindered the care of communities of color because it then basically made it illegal for folks who were providing that type of care in the communities where they couldn't seek care anywhere else to then do that. They still did it because how else are you going to birth babies, right? How else are you going to take care of people? But we couldn't have Black mamas go into the white hospital. They turned them away at the door and said no. And if you don't have a huge spread of care facilities, which was not available, of course, to Black and brown people in the United States, then you're actually hurting that population. So I will say there was a number of things that happened that time that kind of like push, pull that lever. Yes, it helped us overall as a nation increase, but we also have to think about that as we're thinking about our current state. So I'm going to go to where we are currently. And this kind of historical context will make sense for why we are where we are currently when it comes to maternal and child health. So that's just like very like streaky 
background that I could get deeper into that I'm like, we're going to be here all day. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and so where we are today in 2020. So if you look at, I'm going to take two measures, maternal mortality and infant mortality specifically, because those are really good measures of just telling how well are we doing? And if you look at rates of maternal mortality and infant mortality over the course of like, let's go back to that 1920 till now, you'll see this kind of decrease. Like there's a line going down, right? We were moving in the right direction. However, if you start to look at that same information disaggregated by race, and there's like a, a bit of a gap, if you can could put that in your mind, there's a gap in between those lines. So if you had a line for, let's say like white births, non-Hispanic and a line for black births, non-Hispanic, they're both going down-ish in most cases over the course, if we go back to, you know, a hundred years ago. But that disparity, that gap in between is the same or greater today, dependent or where you're looking at. So right now, I think the overall, as of 2020, maternal mortality rate is like 5.4 and that's per 100,000 deaths. But if you look at like, I think the data in 2020, the way that they kind of laid it out on average, we're seeing about 700 maternal mortality deaths in a year in the United States. And and that's per, I believe, 100,000. So 700 deaths in our people who are giving birth. And that 700 deaths is happening either during pregnancy, during the childbirth process or one week postpartum, or within the first year postpartum. So other issues can come up then too. And that's a huge number for a nation that has all of the resources that we could provide the care to our communities in the way that we need to, to ensure that families and communities aren't dealing with this type of massive loss, right? And so if we look at our infant mortality rates, similarly, I think we're about about that number as well. Actually, maternal mortality rates a little higher. I think we're at like 20 per 100,000 births, but maternal, but infant mortality, we're at 5.4. And so that number has decreased. Over time, like I said, it's decreased. But in 2020, a really interesting thing happened, right? We all hit this pandemic and we knew in maternal and child health, like this is not going to be good for our numbers. And just so you know, it takes a while for numbers to come back. So we're still even now getting numbers for what it fully means for 2020 and 2021 and 2023. Everything's a little bit delayed when we get the numbers back. But one thing we can say for sure is that the disparity is what continues to persist and grow. And so overall, as a nation, we aren't doing the best. If we look at some of our like similar counterparts across the globe, our rates are astronomical in comparison to like the Ireland or Japan or other nations similar to ours that are industrialized. And so if you look at the resources and all the things we have, it doesn't exactly line up. There's, there's something else happening in the United States that is causing such a great disparity in our outcomes. The other thing I wanted to mention is that the disparity continues to persist. Black women are dying at a rate of three times that of white women due to pregnancy-related issues. And Black babies are dying at two times the rate of white babies due to issues that happen within their first year of life. We see similar outcomes when we look at Indigenous babies and some Hispanic babies as well in certain communities. And that's just kind of like the national scope. But to go more local and to give you an example, in Douglas County, which is where Omaha is, I believe the, the white infant mortality rate is about, it's close to the national. Like if you look at the overall Douglas County infant mortality rate, it's close to the national rate of 5.4 or something of that nature. But if you look at the black infant mortality rate in Douglas County, it's 12.7. That is astronomically higher than you would anticipate, right? When I was a student or intern really at the Davidson County Metro Public Health Department in Nashville, Tennessee, this is when I started to learn like the depths of this. So being being a, a if you will, like daughter of Dr. Kim in a way that has was like introduced to MCH. And this is just what made you like, oh, we have to do something in this area. When I lived in Nashville in 2012, I believe the Black infant mortality rate was comparable to the infant mortality rate in Haiti. 
it was like 14 point or 15 point something at that time. And so when you see those numbers, one thing I want to emphasize as I'm talking about just like statistics is that we know from our research, from all the things that we've done, this is not due to biological difference. There's no difference in me, who is a Black woman, than there is between Lauren, who is, Lauren, I'm sorry, I'm assuming you're a white woman. Okay, Lauren, who is a white woman, right? There's no biological difference between us, right? And so science has shown there's a 99.9 similarity in humans. We're we're basically the same people. It's that 0.1% difference that gives us the beautiful variation that we see in humankind, right? But we're the same. But the thing that is different is how we experience life and those social factors that come in that actually do have physiological impacts on our body. And so it is what we're finding. It is not race. That's the risk factor, even though in public health, we use race all the time and say, oh, race then means you're at risk for this. And it's not race. And I think we need to be very careful about the language that we're using when we're describing disparities and not laying that over people, because you if you just introduce the data that I said without any context or without further explaining it, you have communities of people who go away thinking something is wrong with me, right? And nothing is wrong with people, but it is not their race. It is the impacts of racism that are the reason for why we're seeing the disparities that we're seeing. And so I just want to say that flat out. It is racism and not race that is the risk factor, but we need to understand it in order to develop strategies and ways to address these issues that we're seeing that are transformative and not just superficial or at the surface level. So I really love that way to describe it and that distinction, because I think as a researcher in public health, it's so easy to say like race is a confounder. And I think you just made me think about, I need to be very aware that I'm not saying that and that it's the effects of racism and how that changes the outcomes for us. So thank you for that. That's super helpful. And I hope that everyone listening also takes that as a takeaway from this. The other, I guess, kind of follow-up I wanted to have on that was that, so we're seeing this similar or widening gap in disparities for mothers and children. But earlier you talked about this racial equity goal by 2030. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of wondering how do we get there and what does that look like if we're still so far apart over the last couple of decades? That is a wonderful question. And that is one that we in maternal and child health are grappling with, working with every day and thinking about how how do we do this work differently? Because what we know is we can't continue to do it the same way we are doing it now. My direct supervisor, her name's Denise Pekka at City Match. She's the deputy executive director. She always says this, like on calls we have, she's like, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing and expecting different results. We can't do that. And so I will say, at least for City Match, City Match is in close partnership with the Maternal and Child Health Bureau at HRSA, so MCHB. So if you hear me say MCHB, it's Maternal and Child Health Bureau. And then also AMCHIP, who's kind of like our little sister organization, I call them, they're near and dear to our heart. They are the, the membership organization for state health departments. So we work very closely together. Our work is super entwined. And this is one of the questions that we've been asking ourselves together in addition with the with our members to figure out what can we do differently it is a lofty goal absolutely and i am all for setting goals that you're reaching for the stars and being realistic i'm i'm one of those both people what it's going to take is us honestly challenging how we do work like in a very real way i think that One thing we have to do, of course, and this kind of leads into another part that we might get into is addressing systems in addition to kind of addressing that like primary, like that, you know, I need care right now group of people. So we have those things in places. And honestly, a lot of our interventions kind of go direct to individual interventions like, oh, this person has diabetes. We need to give them we need to do. But we have to start to ask why and then address the why's. Because if you start to ask, okay, we have this incidence of infant death due to safe sleep issues, right? And yes, you can address it, making sure that babies have safe spots to sleep in the future, making sure all of those things are in place. But then you have to ask, why was safe sleep an issue in the first place? Safe sleep might have been an issue because 
in the housing that they have available, there might be three families housed in what is equivalent to maybe a one bedroom apartment because they have to bring their monies together to be able to afford living in an apartment in a city where housing has become so astronomical that they cannot afford to live on their own. So they have to make do with where they are, right? Then you have to ask why is housing so expensive, right? And then you have to think about, well, housing so expensive because these things have happened over time. And why are people not able to afford housing? Because they don't have adequate income to be able to afford this and that and all of those things, right? Why is why is it that housing so expensive and they don't have adequate income to take care? Well, I'm the history book. So I'm going to take it back to redlining and the impacts of redlining, right? And how that was a practice, honestly, that allowed for economic advancement of some and economic detriment of others, right? You have to start to ask the deeper questions of why, and your strategies or interventions must focus on the why, the deeper why, the root cause. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see the same babies who are dying because they don't have a safe space to sleep. And a lot of times people don't see that connection, right? It's like, is it a jump? No, it's not actually, because we need to figure out where it came from, right? And that's how we really get to that goal in 2030 or whenever we get to it, we have to address systems. I'm sorry. Yes. No, it's all good. I love how when you said you could talk about this forever, you weren't lying. No. You could really, and I I love, (laughs) really good description. And it's really helpful for someone like me who's really interested in MCH and who, you know, sometimes reading a history book is a struggle. So when you hear someone who's very passionate about it, telling you about all these historical just issues and all the problems that we've had in the past that have led up to today, it really, you know, pushes you to work harder or, you know, it reignites that passion for maternal and child health. I want to move on a little bit to talk more about some projects that City Match does. Sure. Especially to address these disparities, right? To address these upstream factors, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that I think that's the proper term, upstream factors. upstream versus downstream. Absolutely. So there's this racial healing revival program at mm-hmm. City Match. Could you tell mm-hmm. us more about that? I've Shorter. just heard about it, but I would I want to hear it straight from you. Sure, absolutely. Happy to talk about the racial healing revival project. And this kind of speaks to that kind of upstream downstream. And thank you for bringing that language in. I was trying to make it as simplified as possible, but that's honestly the way we think. We have to do the downstream. That's that's needed. That direct care is needed. But we also have to address the upstream. So little history behind Racial Healing Revival. It is kind of like a reiteration of a previous project at City Match. So City Match back in about 2010 had a project called the Racial Healing Project. It involved two cities, Memphis and Nashville and Tennessee. And they really were kind of assessing how the history of their communities has impacted where they are today. So they had the oral history collection as well, but then they had community talks to collect some of these pieces and then discuss how could they further expand their MCH work or think a little bit more deeply about their MCH work based on what has happened in the past and how communities have been impacted. Because I have a connection to Nashville, having to gone to school there and done my internship there and worked there for a little bit, One of the major things that came out of that racial healing project was really assessing the impact of having a highway drive through what is North Nashville, where previously there was a thriving Black community. And you will see this pattern across the United States. So the same thing I'm about to say for Nashville is also in Omaha. (laughs) So part of this project, they realized, well, well, we're able to take a deeper dive into understanding how the introduction of a highway directly through North Nashville then impacted and kind of just kind of separated all that they had in place. There were grocery stores and post office and people could go to church together and all, and it was completely walkable. You could go up and down across, what have you, walk to your neighbor's house that's on the other side, what have you, no issues. When you start to like physically sever communities, it has such a detrimental impact on the prosperity of that community. So that, along with some other policies that came into effect, ended up kind of crumbling the integrity of that North Nashville community, same thing for Omaha. And so they were able to have some conversations in the original racial healing project 
that led them to kind of think deeper and a little bit differently about how they could do the work. We decided to bring back this new form called the Racial Healing Revival. And this project involves three cities. We involved Nashville since they were in the previous one, but it also involved Douglas County, Omaha, Nebraska, and then the city of Minneapolis. And the purpose of this project really is we wanted the teams to collect the oral histories of the community and use the information that they get from those oral histories to inform some sort of transformative change within their health department, which in the, within their local health department. So understanding what has happened, how could we change our policies, our practices, procedures in a way that actually helps the community and doesn't continue to harm them. So it also involved an assessment of what are our policies on things or how do we have things set up? And it could be something as simple as someone who might be going to the health department for a WIC appointment or something of that nature. Do you have a policy in place where if they are 15 minutes late for their WIC appointment, they have to make a whole new appointment and have to come back later, you know? And if you do, why? Is there any way around it? Could we do this differently? Because if you think about someone who is seeking that type of service, maybe they had to take a bus over and the bus was late and it's not their fault or they had a child to get ready to go to the appointment or what have you. How can we even make those type of small P policy changes that have a major impact on community and how we're serving them and how we're building relationships. And so that was really the, the crux of the Racial Healing Revival Project and what we wanted people to really get out of that. Yeah, so that's the overall, what the Racial Healing Revival Project was. I was gonna go into what we have seen as a result of this project. So- Go for it. I will say, the oral history piece is not super simple. Um, we actually invited a local historian in Omaha. Her name is Jade Rogers. She's a professor and she's also the founder or co-founder of the House of Afros Capes and Curls, which is a local nonprofit that really works to create spaces for people to be and explore their nerddom, if you will. So Jade is a historian by training and she trained our teams on how to collect oral histories and to think about who is the right person to collect oral histories because it's not just like okay yes like you would think focus group come together let's talk about some things this was a this is a very deep intentional process of collecting oral histories so we thought about who is the right person in the community to collect these oral histories how will they be collected what spaces will they be collected in how will they be transcribed? How will they be shared? All of those pieces to make sure that you're respecting the, the stories that people are telling and taking that data because that is data. It is data, qualitative data is just as much important as that quantitative data we have. Respecting the integrity of that data and then using it in a way that is real. And so I just want to say that was a, a big major piece. And I think that our teams really learned about the power of relationship building. Um, we always say that in maternal and child health, honestly, we say this for health and racial equity too, this work moves at the speed of trust. And to build trust, you have to really build relationships. And so whatever that ship is, you know, a lot of times we talk about like maybe a parent-child relationship or someone that might have a romantic relationship, but the tenets of relationships are all the same. Um, and you have to have trust in order to be able to move from a place that we're just kind of like surface level to a deeper level of healing and transformation in community. So I think that one, the teams learned how important that is. Two, this also exposed, I wanna say like cracks in the system that maybe they didn't realize were there. It exposed places that they were failing, that they didn't realize they were failing. And, you know, failure is not a bad thing. The recognition of that helps us improve. And it helped to bring light to things that maybe just had like a shiny dome over it. But if you looked underneath, it was a wound that really needed to be cleaned out. And those things are super important when it comes to making real transformative change as we had for the purpose of this racial healing revival project. Thank you. That was a really good description. I think that gave like a good overview of both history and where it is currently. 
And I think like on that point, it's really easy to get overwhelmed. Like you kind of talked about systems change earlier. That seems like a really big goal and really big project. So I guess like what can we do at the local level and what does systems change look at for just a regular person like me or for advocates like you? What, What can we do? Sure. I will say everyone has a role. Like don't feel like because you don't have or don't know all the things that maybe someone else knows or all the things that I even know, just because you can't spew that out like I can because I've lived and breathed it, doesn't mean that you don't have a role in our systems change. And so when I think about systems change, like I like to, in my head, I draw a picture. Whenever I'm envisioning something, I always kind of put a picture in my head. And so basically we're taking the systems as they are our healthcare systems, our education systems, our economic systems, our everything that we know them to be. It's like they're in this, um, like in my mind, I see this tiered box. I don't know why. They're in this tiered box. And what we're doing is like picking it up and turning the tiered box on its head. And it's in many ways can feel unnatural. It can feel very uncomfortable, but that's what we have to do. We have to take it and turn it on its head. There are parts of it that we're going to have to chip off and reshape. And so we're kind of taking this tiered box, turning it over. So it's a tiered box with the heavy part on the top. And we are sculpting like this beautiful sculpture to make sure that we can make some sort of change. That's in my head. That's my picture. So just to give you a visual. And so for systems change, I think the role that we all have is just to lead from where you are. If you're a student at the University of Iowa and you're like, I have no idea what to do, you can do very intentional things by one. This is me because maybe I'm a history buff, but a lot of us are at City Match. Learn the history of your community. And your community is just wherever you are, wherever you care about, wherever you're passionate about. It can be where you are at school. It can be about your home, wherever home is for you, right? Learn the history. And there's there's lots of resources to learn about national history, of course, but learn your specific local history because it will be very informative as you're thinking about, okay, what can I do today? That's one piece of it for sure. Also, anyone can be an advocate. Like, sure, I'm an advocate, but I would say both of you are also advocates, honestly. Making sure that you are having an impact whenever there are changes across states. You can always make statements to support certain things that are going through our legislation. You can do that just as a regular citizen. So grow your knowledge, but then as you have opportunity to, you don't have to go to the Capitol House. If you can't make it, you can send in a statement online to support or to go against whatever you have you, a particular piece of legislation that's in place. Policy is huge. Policy is a very big thing. And we have some opportunities to do things different at the policy level. As you learn, and this is going back a little bit smaller, as you learn, as you grow in your historical knowledge or just your general knowledge of things, talk to your people. Your people are your family, the community around you, your friends. Ask what they know. Bring up those conversations. Challenge each other. So sometimes we do things and it's like, yeah, that's the way we've always done it. That's just what we're going to do. But ask why. Have those deeper conversations that can be a little bit uncomfortable. But I think the easiest place to start is with your people. Because those people love you no matter what, right? And so you can start to make changes just by impacting your people. Understanding and changing how you're thinking or growing how you're thinking. And then the impact that it has on you, it's a domino effect. You can have that impact on other people. As more people are impacted and understand things, we start to have an influence on our systems and systems have to change as people grow more aware, basically, because we won't let it just all die. All of that knowledge is not for naught, right? So everyone has a role. Do what you can where you are. You are a leader. So I'm director of programs and a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I'm part of our leadership team. And I, I'm sure I am, but I'm one that is... It's one that will tell you everyone is a leader and you can lead from where you are. Oh. So, okay, here's the deal. That is really empowering and I love it. But, and Lauren is all in the policy world. That's like her bread and butter. And 
I'm not in that world. And I find it very intimidating. So I just want to know if you have any tips for people like me who I, you know, for example, I've tried looking into policy and I got overwhelmed very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just wondering if you have any tips for someone who's, you know, beginning, who knows nothing Mm -hmm. about policy, who wants to help, who wants to learn more about, you know, build that knowledge base and become an advocate. I know you said, you know, you're already an advocate because you're trying right now, but I like, (laughs) you want to do more, you know? Right. Um, And I'm just scared. So like, how does one start to, you know, piece apart this information and learn to, in order to make those changes and like, you know, reach out to policymakers. Like if I wanted to reach out to a policymaker, I don't even know how to do that. So, you know, do you have any tips for that? Sure. This is, I don't know if this is available widely everywhere, but I feel like it is. I would say if you are in contact, there's a lot of local organizations like a ACLU in Nebraska, like Nebraska Appleseed, if they're still called that. And there should be local, local nonprofit organizations that take a deeper dive into some of like the policies and things. And honestly, even just understanding who are my politicians and legislators in my area? What do they do? What are they in charge of? What what does it mean to have a district person? Like, who is that? Whatever local level opportunities there are for education, and I mean real basic level education about who are your local folks, take advantage of that. I'm a huge proponent of really making change at the local level because that's where it happens. So seek out the resources that are available at the local level from organizations that really do things around that. Also, I think that there's a book in my head that I can't, title's not coming to mind at all, but there are some resources out there that can just help give you like real basic, basic foundational knowledge of this is how this works. So I understand that it can be a little bit scary and a little bit intimidating, but even just getting involved with organizations that you know have a toe in policy is a great idea. For example, we might be going there, I be Black Girl that I'm on the Black Maternal Health Work Group with. Ivy Black Girl uh, does a lot of policy-related work by informing legislators of why a certain bill or an idea is important to go ahead and pursue. And so even if it's just that way where you're not necessarily deeply involved in legislation pieces, but you have opportunities to inform policy uh, through an Ivy Black (laughs) Girl-esque group, that's also a way to do it. So you don't have to be the person that's like marching downtown, you could be, but like everyone has a role. You don't have to be that person. You can be the person that's in the background writing a letter. You could be the one that's brainstorming. What are some ways that our state or our local level governance can actually help have an impact on uh, Medicaid expansion or something like that and have actual ideas, right? And bring those, even if you don't know how to see them through, rely on networks, Build your network with people who have influence in those areas. And it could be as simple as at UI, I'm sure there's like a policy student group and they might not know all the things, but they have some access to a few things and they have maybe more experience in those spaces and they could help you use your resources that you have there. There's, there's no shortage. I'll say that. So don't, don't be afraid. Reach out to the people who are nearest you. You don't have to go from man, I don't know anything to being the person who's, you know, up on the hill or anything of that nature. Just start from where you are. Reach out to your friend that's a part of maybe a policy group. Reach out to this person over here that you know has some interest in a particular topic, even if you don't know that they have policy influence and build your network that way too. Thank you. No, I appreciate the um, the push to action because I know fear kind of prevented me from doing a lot of things or like, just like the lack of understanding. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure I'm not the only one who benefits from that advice. So thank you so much for sharing. Absolutely. And you kind of created the perfect segue for me because you just brought up Ivy Black Girl and we would love to hear more about that program. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So Ivy Black Girl is a local nonprofit in Omaha area, and they really focus on reproductive justice work that centers Black women, girls, and femmes. And they do this in a number of areas, but the work that I've specifically been involved with is the birth justice kind of portfolio work. I am part of the 
Black, Black Maternal Health Work Group. It's Black Maternal Health Coalition now. We're, we're solid. But we've been able to really kind of come together across stakeholders that are in the area. So an organization like a City Match, but also National Nebraska Perinatal Collaborative. And then also like local March of Dimes and the local Department of Health and Human Services, things of that nature, have all been able to come together and be a part of this Black Maternal Health Work Group to think through what are some areas that we stakeholders can come together and focus on to ensure that the birth outcomes for Black birthing folks is what we need it to be in the state of Nebraska. And so there's a bunch of us that are coming together. The things that I really love about the intention that Ivy Black Girl has about behind this Black Maternal Health Work Group is it is intentional that a large percentage of this work group is Black identifying people. So it's people from different stakeholders, yes, but they're like, I want a large percentage of this group to be Black identifying people along with other folks, absolutely, to come together to think about what is it that we can do? What influence can we have? Where else could we make an impact? And so the work of the work group and what I Blue Black Girl has been doing in the past few years, I'll say a couple of things that I'm like super proud of Ivy Black Girl for doing that have come out of this. One, October is Nebraska's Black Maternal Health Month. And that has been, we have a full, full support from some of our local folks in Nebraska for that. And we were able to do for the past two years, I think, a Black Maternal Health like summit conference, if you will. So this past year was events throughout the month of October that really focused in on Black maternal health. And so that was super exciting. There were in-person events and some virtual events to make sure we brought some light to that there. One of the things that I'm really proud of the Black maternal health group on is we have had the opportunity to speak with some of our local representatives around issues of Medicaid expansion and why that's important and just other issues that we're seeing in the maternal health, maternal health space specifically that we have some opportunity to bring as potential bills to the rest of the representatives there. And so we were actually able to have like a small group conversation with some folks during, I feel like it was during sessions or maybe like sessions light. So it was a heavy time where they were already busy and We were able to have an hour-long conversation about why all of these things are important, what they should consider as they're looking at what to bring up in their sessions. And we talked about the statistics of things we're seeing in Nebraska, the opportunity for change, how we can think differently about how to reimburse and make sure that people have access to the proper care, what impact that would have then overall for the state of Nebraska and our community. So that was an exciting time to, to be able to do those things with Ivy Black Girl. So Ivy Black Girl, Girl continues to grow and think about how else can we really come together and make some sort of impact. The Black Maternal Health Coalition has started looking at how we might be able to inform or recommend best practices for care for Black birthing people in the state of Nebraska and even regionally. So it's It's a very different thing to live in a state like Nebraska or Iowa or Kansas, like that kind of region and give birth as a Black birthing person. And so we want to kind of give some best practice recommendations for those who are providing care as birth support workers in any way in that area to our birthing people. So So you brought up a lot of projects and a lot of initiatives and all of that that have been happening because of City Match and the Black Maternal Health Work Group or Collaborative Coalition. It's coalition. Yes, coalition it? now, yes. <laughs> the Black Maternal Health Coalition. Are there any other, you know, this I want to give you a chance to shout out anything else that you think would our listeners would appreciate knowing about events, initiatives, resources, just plain shout outs in general. Right. Anything that you think, you know, in your role that you maybe wish that you could have and resources you could have known about or resources that you think it's important that, you know, advocates know. I'm giving you a lot of options right now. No, so my this head is, is like your ding, 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 ding. so many things. <laughs> um, so one, I wanted to kind of backtrack and quickly shout out for the Racial Healing Revival Project. I wanted to shout out Lynn Lee, who is currently a project officer at the Beaumont Foundation, but previously was a part of the City Match team. 
and Stephanie Tyrants, who was also at City Match, but is now at Human Impact Partners, because they, during the time that they all were together, they had a big role in ensuring that the racial healing revival projects was initiated. And then at the time, Lynn was the primary coordinator for the racial healing revival project. So I want to shout them out, not only to shout them out for the work they've done at City Match, but the De Beaumont Foundation and Human Impact Partners have wonderful resources that we use as an organization at City Match all the time. We've done some like partnered work with Human Impact Partners as well. So if you're ever looking for kind of like those bigger public health ideas, things that are coming out, the Beaumont Foundation and Human Impact Partners are two to just tap at all times, honestly. Another resource, if you're new to MCH or if you're, you've been at MCH for a long time, honestly, MCH Navigator, um, which is housed and held by Georgetown. But if you literally go into Google and just type MCH Navigator, it's the first thing that'll come up. It has a number of tools and resources. It can take you through some training modules just so you have some foundational knowledge in maternal and child health. So that is all there as well. I would definitely shout that out. It's just a resource for folks to use. For City Match, of course, go to our resources tab. We have a number of resources that are centered around being actively anti-racist organizations. I want to shout out AMCHIP, uh, NICHQ, the National Healthy Start, and us for having this joint agreement to really be actively anti-racist and think about how we are working together as national MCH entities to support our members and challenge ourselves to undo some of these systems that are in place just due to the nature of white supremacy culture and how that is in the United States. So I want to shout that out. The last two things I'll shout out are some events. I want to shout out AMCHIPS conference, which will take place in early May, May 6th through 9th, I believe, in New Orleans. And so registration is open for them. If you are connected to a state entity or anyone who would be interested to learn more, please do attend their conference. There will be City Match representatives there. And then I also want to shout out City Matches Conference in September 20th through 22nd also in New Orleans. So if you want a twofer New Orleans, because it's a place to explore, you have reasons to. And so I would encourage you to attend City Matches Conference. It's amazing. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a city matcher. We just know how to do conferencing really well and give sessions that are important to our audience. And so please do seek that. City Matches registration for conference will open in May. So it's not quite open yet, but please do check out the website for that. Lovely. Okay, we have one last question and then I'll wrap it up. So we asked this question to all of our guests and it's really broad and it can be in the public health field or something more personal. But what was one thing that you thought you knew but were wrong about later? So this question is so interesting. It had me like just thinking for a while, like, huh, very, but I love it. And so here's where my brain went. Um, And I said it a little bit before, but I just want to expand on it a little bit. You are a leader where you are. And I, I know those words are just like, okay, yeah, cool. Sounds wonderful, the words. But I think that as a growing public health professional, I didn't ever really understand that you are truly a leader where you are. You don't have to be in a traditional, and I use that in quotes, leadership role to be a leader. And so I say that because City Match, we talked a lot about this in the past. So I'm going to give you all like a short version. But we as an organization went on a very intentional equity journey beginning in 2018. So I'm backtrack. City Match has always been about health equity, has always worked in racial equity spaces. But to understand the United States, you have to understand the history. You have to understand the history of of the United States impacts literally everything and everybody. And so whether we like it or not, we as individuals, we as organizations, we as systems have been impacted by the culture of white supremacy and may be doing things or have policies in place that are actually harming and not helping, no matter who we are, right? And so in 2018, through a very like rich, deep, in-person conversation with our executive director, Chad Abrish, and a small group of us, we basically challenged each other to, to think about how are we actually demonstrating 
that we know and understand equity? And how are we not? And let's be really real about how we're not. And if you are doing this work of examining at a very deep level, it is hard. It hurts a little bit because it's kind of like someone's telling you, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. What do you mean? So it's kind of like facing that fact and taking that in for growth. Cause you could take that in for harm, right? But we as an organization took that in for growth and we're not, you know, being, we're being very unapologetic about it. We've shared our story on a national platform before that we, we started to take a deeper dive and taking a deeper dive at the organizational level is not just a training. Let me say that. Cause a lot of people take that approach and they're like, we did an implicit bias training. We're fixed. We're not. <laughs> at all. We did implicit bias training, but we knew that was like step one in said process, right? And so we are still as an organization going through this journey because you don't undo hundreds of years of, of a system that's been put in place, right? With one training or with two trainings or with one year or with two years, you just don't. And so we have gone through really intentional training with each other that has allowed us to address what do we have in place that's not really that equitable? What are ways that we're working together that might be inauthentic that are actually hindering the impact that we could potentially have on the field of MCH? Where else could we grow in our policies and procedures? And that goes from how are we looking at like hiring practices to how are we actually showing up for communities when we go out to provide technical assistance? And it is a journey. And that's what I will forever call it because you, you grow. It's a continuum. You don't ever like reach a space where you're like, I have achieved it. You're just constantly growing. And I appreciate City Match as an organization being willing to constantly grow despite the growing pains of that type of real equity journey. And so I bring that up as a what I didn't know because I was a public health project coordinator, entry level at City Match person at the time. And I was one of the people that basically took a risk, went out on a ledge, went out on a, maybe this won't work. Maybe this will be accepted very poorly and took a chance to stand up and have a conversation with the formal leadership, right? In our organization to say, hey, we're not doing this very well. And what could we do together to improve it? So you are a leader wherever you are. That's the piece that I didn't know fully, I think, that I know now. Well, that was lovely. And with that, we will wrap up this episode with Jessica. We hope that this episode shined a light on the maternal health in the U.S. and efforts being made towards racial health equity and how you can contribute to these efforts by being a leader wherever you're at. Our sincere thanks to you, Jessica, for both the time you spent here with us today and for your work in promoting health equity in public health every day. And for all of you guys for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this new episode. And if you did, share this episode with others who may be interested in this topic or who might need to know a little bit more. This has been Lauren and Radha from The Front Row. See you next week for a new episode. And that's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Jessica Yuli for joining us today. This episode was hosted by Rada Vellamuri and Lauren Lavin and written, edited, and produced by Anya Morozov. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook, and our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? You can always reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care.